clear. We are the weirdos. I am God. What? I tried to warn her. Hello, everybody, and I'm welcome back. Of course, welcome back to Ox Tyrion because you've been here before. The podcast on which we rightfully enshrine the movie, the horror movies of the new millennium into the pantheon as they deserve to be. And I don't have to do a lot of talking before I get to the important part of our conversation today, because the important part of our conversation revolves around our guest, who can introduce themselves now. Guest, why did you tell you tell everybody who's out there? Who's in the room with us? Hi, everyone. My name is BJ Colangelo, and I am a filmmaker, screenwriter, and, you know, all-around film analyst and theorist, and I am an unapologetic lover of all things millennial horror. I was going to, I think that's a good place to start because I, you were gathered here today to sort of break form with the convention that says this was a sort of throwaway era of horror, that this Mm -hmm. gave us a lot of ephemera, but nothing that really had staying power. I feel like there's a sort of snooty implication that these movies do not belong to be honored and analyzed as, you know, such vaunted counterparts of, of our present era, like Goodnight Mommy and The Witch and and wonderful films like that. Truly wonderful films. Mm-hmm. But we don't, like, the chorus of the Babadook does not need more members in it. <laughs> they are, they have, they have the force, they have the wind at their back. And this is not a marginalized group of people calling for the critical recognition of, you know, movies like Raw. Thank God for you, Julia DeCornau and Garance Marillier. Um, so to, so on this occasion, BJ, what is it about the aughts that speaks to you? What I can't, You were one of the first people I went to to be like, I need you to participate in this. And why don't you break down a little bit for us why I knew you were so essential to this conversation? So first things, um, for those that don't know, I'm also a small child in the sense that I was born in 1990. So my coming into my own in regard to finding new horror movies were movies that came out during the 2000s. These were the movies that my parents were not going to introduce me to because they didn't know they existed. (laughs) So these are the movies that my friends and I were going to judge solely on the box cover art at the local blockbuster when we're sneaking beers, eating pizza, and having sleepovers. These are sleepover movies. This is sleepover Absolutely. Horror. So I have a great affinity for a lot of these films because they remind me of a, of a cherished time in my life. And I think what has happened is when we look at films from the 70s, the 80s, and even into the 90s, plenty of people are remembering how they felt when they watched those movies at that same time. But as they got older, they didn't have these moments the way that I did with 2000s movies. So it's easy for them to turn into the get off my lawn and dismiss them because they don't resonate with them. And guess what? That's totally cool. They don't need to resonate with you because they resonate with me and plenty of other people. That is exactly correct. And I I am a big fan. I, I found that my sort of uh, a mandate that I am deciding is very important to me in like my my still writing life, but now independent producer life is I wish to like address the canon and sort of not dismantle it in the sense of like say that movies you know from the Carpenter classics and the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse along you know Tor Hooper and Wes Craven Mm -hmm. and such not that those movies are not 
crucial. Not that those movies are not the classics everybody says that they are, but that that canon was determined by a, a generally pretty samey looking group of critics. And, mm-hmm. and fans, fans and audience members too, a rather homogenous set of people who, you know, up to a recent point in the conversation were deemed, uh, you know, wise enough in the ways of the genre and, and film criticism to have these gilded opinions about them. And that's why a big part of this, a big part of Ots Tyrion is basically there's no, there's, you know, there's no rule. There's no, mm-hmm. like, if people say, would you do X? My answer is, do you have an argument for it? Then sure. Like, <laughs> the, the, the price of admission to get in the door, as far as any title goes, is can you make a passionate case for it? And so, BJ, what are you, what was your, your heart song, mm-hmm. an intentionally chosen word, that drew you to make a case, such a strong case today, for the Austerian catalog? So... I need you to know that outside of the world of film, mm-hmm. I am also a massive fan and performer in musical theater. Yes, big facts, big facts. Big, big facts, big facts. So a movie that is near and dear to my heart, not just because of what it did cinematically, but also culturally, is Repo the Genetic I was given the movies that I, I typically have had conversations with you about. You had this had been mentioned before. I know it has come up, but it was such a zag of a choice for this forum. I am thrilled. I love a zag. I love to be caught by <laughs> surprise, and I'm so excited that you chose this because I honestly, I don't know anybody else in my orbit that would have done that. And this movie obviously deserves representation. So, what are you know, let's 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 you know, let's acquaint our let's acquaint our friends right out there with the mm-hmm. mission of Criterion. As you may have noticed, there is a tie to the name of this podcast to the very vaunted Criterion Collection, a film uh, preservation and uh, a preservation group and an archive, and uh, it's kind of you know in movie circles, it's definitely become a shorthand for something that kind of like a movie that deserves it. You know, a movie that deserves its place in history, a movie that deserves restorations and bonus features and 4K treatments and commentary, bonus commentary tracks and all that stuff. So what is the Criterion's mission? It says, since 1984, the Criterion Collection has been dedicated to publishing important classics and contemporary films from around the world in editions that offer the highest technical quality and award-winning original supplements. I, that, that is good. Great. Mm-hmm. What I don't see, it like, give, okay, fine. Give me all these Wes Anderson movies. That's lovely. Thank God for finally recognizing Agnes Varda. Like, I feel like there have been calls. There was a tremendous feature by uh, Kyle Buchanan at the New York Times earlier this year that was about the lack of African-American filmmakers in the Criterion mm-hmm. Collection. It is a huge, hugely glaring omission from their catalog. And there is a sense of fun and frivolity to films that I think downgrades what people would consider their sort of objective merits in favor of things that are more serious. In the way that, in the way that, you know, with rare exceptions like a get out, people look at like a populist brand of horror 
things like what a what a you know a screen gems would make what a blumhouse would make and innately there is a lower start value imposed on movies like that versus ones oh, that absolutely. would come from a24 which immediately come with a credibility imprint but what we have in the 2000s that I really want to that I really want to explore and I really want to hear about your view on repo through the lens of is this is such a fascinating time in horror culture where it was really profitable and there were really big stars and there were really elaborate productions at a scale, at a frequency that I don't think we're ever going to see again from a studio standpoint. Like, we're not going to see that many studio-funded operations pouring money into big, shiny features on the order of a House of Wax or 13 Ghosts as a matter of regular course ever again. And something like Repo, the genetic opera, is such... A, is such a wonderful amalgamation, I feel like, of the excesses of the... Paris Hilton is in this movie. Yes, she is. In one of her most just inspired performances. Yes! Yes! When, when they made the announcement of, you know, this is this movie that's coming out and Paris Hilton is in it, the amount of people that were like, why would they cast Paris Hilton mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in a movie? Oh my gosh, it's going to be terrible. No, she is the most perfect cast person for that role. She's incredible. <laughs> grave robber, grave robber. Sometimes I wonder why I even bother. Grave robber. So then tell me, you know, give me the sort of like then and now scope of, because the criterion is retrospective. Criterion mm-hmm. is looking back and, and seeing how something has stood the test of time. So give me your experience of Repo at first, at first blush. And then now how, with all these years removed, I think we're 12 years removed now, where, how, how is it, like, looking at it now and considering it now, is this a work that has stood the test of time? Is it just a perfect snow globe of its moment and not necessarily has, it doesn't, does it have that timeless quality or is it such a perfect sort of encased in amber experience as to be, one of those movies that's an amazing artifact, even if it cannot endure beyond its moment. Tell me about the then and now relationship you have with Repo Genetic Opera. In terms of then, uh, Repo the Genetic Opera came out during my first semester of college. Mm. And this was when I was probably at my most insufferable as both a horror fan and as a current student in, in, in musical theater. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I, I had taken my 101 classes. I thought I knew everything. <laughs> so when Repo, when Repo came out, I immediately became obsessed with it because this was the musical for me. Mm-hmm. I was always getting in trouble in my theater classes because I think that a lot of Golden Age musicals are bullshit. Sure. And they do not interest me. Um, I've seen them 10,000 times. I'm done. I'm just just done with them. Yeah. So for Repo to come out and not only be a musical, but be a horror musical and a horror musical that isn't trying to wink at the audience mm-hmm. the same way that I think a lot of like like Little Shop of Horrors does um, was very, very attractive to me. But what really made me fall in love with Repo the Genetic Genetic Opera was not just that it's a horror musical, but the way in which it was brought into the world, which is Daryl and Bowsman taking it on tour, going to 
art house theaters all across the country, having people show up in costume, turning it into an event, a midnight movie event. And outside of films that were made that happened to be unintentionally bad, like The Room or any of the Neil Breen movies, (laughs) this is one of the most recent and most successful efforts of a filmmaker to go look I made something I mm-hmm. believe in it no one else is taking it seriously so fuck them I'm gonna do it my way where the fuck is dad brothers he left me in charge sister I don't take lip from my slut <laughs> my brother and sister should fuck that feels exactly think- like what we are gathered to do here today that is exactly yes. the essence <laughs> of what I want to do Yes. So it it really blew me away because if anything, Repo the Genetic Opera shows the lengths that people are willing to go to promote and show their art. Mm -hmm, This mm -hmm. is art. Mm -hmm. People were afraid of Repo because they didn't think that it was going to make money. So they pushed it aside and they pushed it aside and they pushed it aside. And then suddenly... Darren Bowsman gets the opportunity to make some Saw movies and then boom, now we're allowed to have Repo. Mm-hmm. And it it's like, you know what? No, there were, there were fans that already existed, people that believed in this and loved it. And if that is not the spirit of Criterion, just unabashedly loving film, then I don't know what is. Honestly, no. And I think that, I think that commitment to the passion of the art form in a way that manifests that manifests in such a loud, brash, colorful way that isn't that doesn't necessarily you know that's not necessarily Phantom of the Paradise you know like that that movie I feel like I wish there could be the embrace of what that movie was doing at a broader level instead of like a well we could just keep loving a De Palma movie like we love it because it's De Palma and it's got Paul Williams like there's a reason that movie has its cosign to it and we can consider it something like a staple of genre festivals where we'll have retrospectives and anniversary screenings whereas like Darren Lynn Bowsman not I feel like it's no slight on him to say is not Brian De Palma because there are few people who are Brian De Palma (laughs) and it is so much my hope that if people get a little bit of juice in their career, that they when they that when they have that opportunity to take that big swing, when they have that big swing in them, they will swing so fucking hard. And like you said, you get a couple saws under your belt, and then you're like, well, you know what I'm gonna do with this? I'm gonna do repo the genetic goddamn opera because I've got a little bit mm-hmm. of traction. I know a few more people. I can trade on the name of this thing that was quite successful that gave me a new platform. And not everybody has to have a grand musical ambition in them. But what I hope is that it's so hard to get into the door in the business of making movies that once people do, they want to make a wave when they get there. And this is a movie that makes a fucking wave. Absolutely. And there is... There is nothing that looks like Repo. Mm -hmm. Even if you take the music out of the equation, there are few films that are like, you know what, we're going to shoot this with the entirety of the RuPaul's Drag Race season one filter. (laughs) Like, it, it is so ambitious in what they're trying to do. It is so intentionally stylized. Everything about Repo is so specific to Repo that even, like, you can, you can emulate a De Palma style. You, you can. can emulate 
Rocky Horror and Richard O'Brien. People have done it and continue to do so. There is nothing quite like Reboot the Genetic Opera, and that even includes <laughs> the other musicals that Darlin Bowsman and Terrence Zadunik have done together, like The Devil's Carnival. Even those are not like Repo. Interesting. Because Repo is so purely unique to itself, and you can you can feel the passion in Every ridiculous line, every costume choice, every lighting choice, every strange sort of Harry Potter-esque moving photo painting on the wall, <laughs> every bad wig, like it is so perfect and it, it truly embodies a very DIY punk rock filmmaking spirit and at the same time an appreciation for, for the limitations of theater as well. And I think that it is just, it's just beautiful. And it, it always bums me out that when people talk about this film, they they want to compare it to to the Rocky Horrors and the Phantom right, of the Paradises. Right. And, it's, and they only do it because it's like, oh, well, they're musicals, therefore they're in the same genre. Exactly. It's like, no, they're not. They're not even close to being the same movies or the same styles just because characters happen to sing does not mean <laughs> that they are the same that's like because if you if you compare it the same way you do other musicals no one out there is trying to say that something like Sweeney Todd is the same as Cinderella it's not it's just not now what do you think about the aughts being such a time of, of excess and, and lack of restraint in the genre that they were, do you feel like, how do you feel like about Repo as either a reflection of the time that it came out in, or perhaps as, as a, as a, you, you know, a unicorn in the time, do you feel like it is reflective of the 2000s to you? Or do you feel like it stands, it, or is it, is it's singularity emphasized by how unlike the things that came around it. Like, do you think it is very of its era or is it of a different time that was dropped in this era where it probably, where it maybe wasn't under as understood as it could have been? I think that it is only apparent how of its time it is in hindsight. I think at the time it was, you know, it's this very extremely brutal movie. Like you take those songs out, like the gore scenes and the amount of people that Bill Mosley just stabs because <laughs> yeah. he feels like it yeah, yeah. is excessive. I mean, Paris Hilton's face falls off of her face <laughs> in front of a crowd of people. That is very, very extreme. And I think that, yes, that is very responsive of the, the, the torture porn sort of era, the high gore. But that is something that I don't think people recognized at the time because everything was about, oh, this is the most extreme musical that has ever been made. And mm -hmm. people viewed it more so as, oh, they're trying to they're trying to be that musical. They're trying to be that extreme musical. When in reality, no, this is it's very much emblematic of the the type of horror happening at the time and you know to go back with like the costume and the styling this is also like right when like scene kids and emo kids right. are like very much exploding this is very my chemical romance uh-huh uh-huh and those sort of iconic looks 
you can see sort of implanted in a lot of these characters' designs um, that at the time I don't think I even recognized how obvious it is. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, but in in rewatching it, I, I look at it and I'm like, oh, no, no, I could buy a lot of these outfit pieces at Hot Topic <laughs> if I wanted to and put it together, and that is very 2000s. That is so... It really... It was really just got. It was it was definitely goth for everyone. Like you didn't. Oh yeah. It was it was absolutely goth and moss. You didn't have to be counterculture to acquire these clothing items. You didn't have to like dig through secondhand stores. We had Spencer's Gifts and we had Hot Topic and we had what we had these stores that were willing to provide like almost costumes as outfits and which uh, mm-hmm. Dolls Kill has returned. To fulfill that niche now, uh, I the, the I realized going into a Dolls Kill store here in LA, I was like, oh, so this is just the Matrix and the cast of Euphoria put together in a milkshake, like is what Dolls oh, yeah. Kill. Hot to- Hot Topic and Delia's like Delia's. Got shaken up together. Yep, and spit out goth and cyberware and <laughs> club outfits and things that are like vaguely appropriative of other cultures yes but it's fashion like that's what's (laughs) happening now um now do you find that in your in your standing of the aughts do you find that because i feel like repo is not one that is oft brought up do you feel like it finds a home among fans of 2000s horror or does it because it seems to me a bit like this is still even a stepchild of the era in which oh, I people agree with you. <laughs> will purport to be like, oh, I love this era, I love this horror, but it's still like, oh, but mm, I either don't think about that movie or no, I don't count that movie in like the, you know, splatter factory Michael Bayization of, of what the 2000s in horror was. I'm right there with you. I think that this one, because this has so many strikes against it in the fact that one, it's a 2000s horror film. People are already going to be against it. Two, it's a musical. A lot of people don't like musicals. And three, um, and I say this with all of the love in my heart, um, not everyone in the cast is particularly gifted in terms of their musicality. Sure, sure. I, I, th- I think that uh, uh, Terrence Zedunek has made some very interesting music. Some of the songs are exceptional. I think Zydrate Anatomy Uh is exceptional. Uh I think anything that was written for Sarah Brightman or Anthony Head is exceptional. I love the stylization of everything that Alexa Vega sings as Shiloh. I don't think she's particularly the strongest singer. And a lot of times people, um, you know, same thing also with um, Paris Hilton is doing a Paris Hilton. Yes, just doing Paris Hilton. She's doing Paris Hilton. Great. Uh, Bill Mosley cannot sing and is talk singing through most of it. <laughs> um. If there ain't one, I will make one. Luigi, don't take shit from no one. One brain market up. Only I got brains enough. That's why Pop will leave Gene Co to me. Uh, Paul Sorvino, I think he has moments where he's very, very good, but he's also a very, like, classical sort of baritone voice. Yeah. Which is not pop. Like, that's not a pop vocalist. There's a lot of classical vocals going on in here, and I think that freaks people out, because if they want a musical, they want it to be, like, a rock musical. 
And this is not a rock musical. There are rock moments. I mean, Joan Jett plays guitar when she has, you know, 17 and it's God. it's this like tantrum. <laughs> but otherwise, this is pretty by the book musical theater. And that is not what a lot of people like. I feel like we just we weren't in a position in the 2000s either, like as a whole, to appreciate the spirit of gayness that oh yeah that just like <laughs> that i hope we're working toward rec- like claiming now as something that like so so much of of like popular zeitgeisty like marketing language and internet communication is pulled from the way queer people talk to each other specifically the way queer people of color talk to each other and there is and yet there is a persistent sort of unawareness by i think most and refusal by some to embrace how queerness has is so imprinted on you know the most not only the most extravagant of art but particularly the most extravagant of art and then I I think I think there is like you said with the the aspects of musical culture in a in an era where there was like it was fascinating the 2000s is a time of like so much passive homophobia at the same Mm -hmm. time as a growing presence of queerness and homosexuality like the me and me and Sam Weinman have had many conversations about like the prevalence of saying something's gay or or calling people fag in a way that mm-hmm. was meant to just be a blanket term of dismissal of like something being dumb yes. so it's it's like you know oh it's not homophobic that's just how people talked and it's like that's like oddly wrong and at once accurate because homophobia was becoming like so de rigueur that one could use language like that and actually be convinced it was detached from the mm-hmm. root meanings of those words and yet that that is violence like to use those words is violence and is to reinforce mm-hmm. that that language is should have a negative connotation and therefore the things that it is literally representative of are bad so it's just I, I when when there are things like this especially like a Jennifer's body like a like a repo where there is so much sort of queerness in its either presentation or messaging coursing through its veins that will that in the 2000s we particularly we weren't equipped to embrace at that time and i don't think we embraced camp then as much either in this not at all like now at least i feel like you know the met regardless of how regardless of how effective the representations of camp were among the dresses and suits of so many celebrities that attended that there was a met gala that was dedicated to camp like the conversation around it as a cultural reality as an aesthetic as a as a presence in art was recognized at like the premier sort of rich people pageant in fashion that made that normal people can see and, and, and google all the outfits of so it's it a camp has ascended to this realm of cultural commentary that it wasn't at yet in 2008 and repo is is pure camp <laughs> yes. everything about repo is camp and i'm glad that you bring up the queerness because whether or not it is it was intentional. There is so much queerness that is just permeating throughout this movie. I mean, you have the things that are are explicit. You have, you know, Pavi, who is continually changing his face, and it is getting more and more feminine with every single change towards, you know, the end where he buys his sister Paris Hilton's face and wears it proudly. <laughs> like, there's, there's almost, you know, uh, you could almost make a trans narrative out of that. And what's also really interesting is there are so many characters that are gender ambiguous in the background of 
of these uh, these events that happen in Repo. One of my favorite moments is uh, Bill Mosley's character Luigi is is because he has the bad temper and he's yelling about wanting coffee, and a person you know pops up and is like, "No one's gonna hang if I don't get my coffee." And he screams, I will shoot you in the face! He's mad. <laughs> and it's the only time you see this character. And there is no understanding of how this character identifies that the voice is a little bit lower, but uh-huh. they're wearing a full face of makeup and uh-huh. they're wearing a dress. And uh-huh. they have a very fashionable woman's haircut, but I have no idea. And that is really interesting that that was, you know, that was a choice. Somebody had to give that line and that was the choice. And there's even these, mo- there's a moment where... They're doing the, you know, the, the titular opera and Sarah Brightman is singing. And like, first of all, Sarah if you fucking Brightman, have Sarah, Sarah fucking Brightman, Sarah Brightman <laughs> it's immediately camp. Like, who did you cast? Oh, the woman that Andrew Lloyd Webber wrote Phantom of the Opera for? God. That's, that's camp. Um, but they, there's a shot after she's singing where they then show the audience and the audience is, you know, this is very much like a Hunger Games capital sort of yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, setup yeah. of people. But in the background, there are two girl uh, women cage dancing, and one of them uh, would be identified as she's she's obese, like, and she's a very large woman in very like you know sexy lingerie cage dancing, and she's right alongside this like you know like traditionally attractive woman, and it's like that is also a choice. Yeah, yeah. Like they are prioritizing unconventional looking people unconventional in the sense of like what hollywood you know right of course what the media is the standard of beauty yes of course. yes but they there are so many characters in here that don't look like everybody else and i think that is also something worth celebrating because we didn't do that and we still don't and this movie does no i think that's really i think that's a really good point and that leads me into something too i think like that in an era with the 2000s where beauty was so conventionally packaged. Oh yeah. This is the this is the heyday of the C of the the WB into CW era. Yeah, absolutely. This is like people rolling off assembly lines kinds of hot. And it was a, you know, it, you put a Jessica Beale in a Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie and not only like have her wearing a tank top, but you have her like have that tank top knotted up for some reason to like expose her midriff on her like incredibly feminine yet muscular form you have obviously Paris Hilton in this movie where her face is taken off and put on the face of another person implicitly because that woman represents Paris represents a standard of beauty that can only be attained by this person through like surgical enhancement. And you have the beginning of the, you have like the very beginnings of the influencer um, sort of socialite reality star era with Paris and the beginnings of Kim Kardashian. You Mm -hmm. have this very, this homogenizing, ever homogenizing style of palatable palatable beauty that like I think we will come to know sort of as influencer face in in the present time but you have that lined up in such incredible contrast with like you said the non-normative in like non-normative beautiful people throughout this movie and it's finding it is finding and emphasizing the beauty and the freakishness, which is obvious. Like we have Bill Mosley here, which is obviously something that Rob Zombie has long done in his movies, like lionizing the freaks and the outsiders and such like that. 
But you take something like this, and like you said, you have Sarah fucking Brightman, and you have Paris Hilton in the same movie. And then to throw them all together in this crazy blender, I mean, what a fascinating, what a fascinating moment of time to sort of have in your hand, where A, this person who made, you know, made their bones in like the most famous, the most famously gory franchise, I think, in in, in American Mm -hmm. film history. Not necessarily the most gory, but most famously gory. And then you have them taking this, taking what they've, the credibility they've gotten, perhaps money they've gotten, taking it to this thing that you can really only make if you've got like a rich uncle or someone's like, well, you made a Saw movie. And so we'll see Mm -hmm. what you can do with this one. And everything's really bloody and gory and excessive in this era. So I guess you going big in these ways is kind of an extension of that. So I guess, yeah, let's, let's all put this together. And it's, it's, it's ugliness and it's beauty exists in contrast too to the very polished, highly polished movies of the day, horror of the day that we got so much of. With stars like Jared Padalecki and Alicia Cuthbert and like yes. these very palatable. <laughs> and it was just like, you know, some of these people can't fucking sing. And some of them look real wild. And then there's also Paris. And we're just going to all put them in the same place and say that these people belong together on the same canvas. And it and it works so well to it. The, the fact that Bill Mosley can't really sing becomes very endearing. It becomes part of that character uh-huh. that he's constantly having to push himself forward with this family, I mean, the 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 person who plays Pavi is Ogre from Skinny Puppy, who has this beautiful high falsetto that just <laughs> randomly pops up here and there, and it becomes part of part of the charm. But I think, I think what is always additionally frustrating to me, and th- this this relates to sort of filmmaking now, is we look at somebody like like a Robert Pattinson or like a Daniel Radcliffe, who did these huge, gigantic franchises that made them so much money that they can spend the rest of their lives making the Lighthouse, making Swiss Army Man, making yep. whatever weird ass project they want. But then Darylin Bowsman did the same thing. He, you know, made his Saw movies and then took the money he made from those to go, I'm going to make a weird fucking musical. Uh-huh. And people look down on him for it. And it's very frustrating to me that we are willing to forgive and accept and even encourage and glorify actors who do this. But if filmmakers do it, then it's looked down upon like you shouldn't have done that. Like, but this is his passion project and this is what he really cares about. And this is what he wanted to make. And yet uh, people tend to like hold it against him. And I don't understand that. I think that Darren Bowsman is one of the most fascinating creatives working in the space because he's not he only has a doing... very interesting body of work right so it's not interesting even, it's not even just the the movies that he makes which i always think are very fascinating but then he also does things like the tension ex- experience which is essentially like interactive manipulative live theater mixed with like a haunted house it's craziness and i and i'm so impressed by somebody like that and so fascinated by somebody whose brain works this way. And I I honestly think that Darylin Bowsman is the closest thing that we have gotten to a John Waters type filmmaker for 
the new millennium, somebody who just genuinely does not give a fuck what you have to say about their art. They're making their art. And I think that is so admirable. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, I think it's in a time too when it was filmmakers got to really run wild. I feel like in the two thousands, as far as horror goes, but in within, within very defined constraints, like there were very clearly rules. There was very clearly a formula and to, to deviate from that is just, is something that is heartening to see and to know that, I don't know, to know that you, to know that you take the platform that you have and you use that to take chances. It's a scary thing, but to take one so big as something like Repo and then continue to work after and continue to keep on keeping on after I don't know. I find that I find that to be be very heartening, particularly at a time. And I know that I'm gravitating toward the excess of of new millennium horror because horror that is so restrained is so prized at the moment. And I I very much appreciate the artist, the gorgeous, quiet artistry of movies like A Saint Maud. I would like a I would like a healthy, balanced meal that gives me just like a fucking seven layer cake with sparklers and candles you can't blow out and fucking balloons coming (laughs) off the top. Like I want that too. Like I want my balanced diet of horror. And I feel like this was one of those rare balancing movies um, as far as the big and the gaudy and the gore. Because there are a lot of, obviously, especially coming from abroad, there, there there are understated movies of the 2000s, movies like, you know, just credibly great movies like The Ring. Incredibly great movies like Let the Right One In. But I, I wish to I wish to to celebrate, I wish to glorify movies like Repo, the genetic opera, in the pursuit of codifying an austerion, in which we recognize these movies and the cultural resonance that they really do have on par with something that is, you know, from the 70s and really cool, but we've been talking about the 70s for 50 fucking years. And so I would like to bring in a couple new movies to the conversation. And if people need any further proof that something like Repo is worthy of praise, lest we not forget, although not nominated, both uh, Chromagia and Chase the Morning, (laughs) the songs sung by Sarah Brightman, were shortlisted for Best Original Song at the Academy Awards. That is pretty. Could you imagine? That is pretty special. If you tuned in to watch the Academy Awards and Sarah fucking Brightman (laughs) shows up with feathered fake eyelashes and gigantic bright blue contacts to sing you an Italian aria and then stabs her (laughs) eyes out. People would have lost their mind. Oh my God. They would have lost their fucking mind. It really is a case of the Oscars could never. Of course not. Yeah, it's a, your, your Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences could never. And what's also very interesting to me is, so this is coming out, um, this is coming out in late 2008. And I remember people talking about like how extreme this was and how it was also like so ridiculous, like that it's all this blood and music. You can't do that. Well, a year later is when Lady Gaga does her blood VMA performance. You're so right. You're so right. It's within a year one whole year that that change happens. So it's also just this very interesting thing where this, I don't know if this movie would have been a smash success had it come out after 
that sort of thing. Um, but but they were they were even ahead of its time with that concept that then became iconic because Gaga did it. It almost feels like it almost feels like Repo. I feel like is is suited for the present specifically in the way that it did not serve the movie to arrive at a time when we still had a monoculture. Mm-hmm. The monoculture does not really exist anymore. Like outside of outside of superhero movies, there there really aren't things that show up in the theater that literally everybody goes to see that even my mom in Canby, Oregon would know exist. Let alone like maybe she's she's definitely going to be the ones who sees those movies, but like even like my sister and her husband, they might not necessarily go see all these all those movies, but they know they know Hobbs and Shaw is out. Like they they the right. Fast Universe, the 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 Marvel universes, things like that that really penetrate on a global scale. Now there's a sort of there's a sort of awareness and expectation that you're not going to penetrate the four quadrants because barely anything does that anymore because there are too many things competing for our attention. And it feels like Repo would have been well suited to arrive at the current cultural landscape because it could have winnowed its way to the people who needed to find it without being considered a failure for not being put in for being put in front of people who didn't need to find it and didn't consider it consider it worthy it would have it would have got to the audience it needed without having to shake off the audiences it didn't need to prove it was something because it was never for everybody this is this is also coming out at the time where something going direct to streaming or direct to dvd was still considered a death yes 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 extremely good point where whereas now if this was a movie that you know say a netflix had dropped a trailer for people would have went what the fuck is that i want to see that paris hilton i want to see that yeah and like gif it put it on twitter Exactly. This movie, oh, it's so gifable too. It's so, so gifable. Um, but I think what's also become this very elusive thing about Repo is you also can't get the sheet music for Repo. Oh, um, so a lot of the staying power that a lot of these, um, you know, these midnight movie yeah. or musicals sort of have is that you can you can get that music, you can bring it to your audition. It's your cool, edgy selection. Um, I fully admit, thank you, huge fucking nerds on reddit somebody did figure out sheet music and was posting them for the time being so in my college audition book right next to uh right next to my my phantom of the opera you know old souls ballad (laughs) i had the belty loud infected um from repo and like those were those are my go-tos and every time without fail somebody be like what the fuck are these from right right and i yeah. was like oh Phantom of the paradise and repo the genetic yeah. opera it's mine um a bj I, a bj colin jello story <laughs> yes but i think that that has that has also limited a little bit of this film's expansion because because it's not this massive huge musical it makes it harder like who you know where where do the rights go how do you redistribute this money do you do a cast recording like what do you do for these things it becomes a little bit more complicated and that also hinders some of the some of the longevity and if it's not if if it's theatrical run is not going to make the money then people are not going to constitute putting in the effort to do those additional things the way that something like Cats was able to do. Yep. No, this feels built for, this feels built for an arrow. It feels built for a vinegar syndrome. It feels built for a Mondo steelbook release of the soundtrack with accompanying sheet music. Oh, yes. Like soundtrack on vinyl with sheet music in within the sleeve kind of thing. 
Absolutely. Now, I I don't want this to be, uh, I we could go on forever, but I want to make sure we keep this digestible. So, BJ, are there <laughs> parting, are there any parting things you would like to say about the immortalization and preservation of Repo the Genetic Opera that we have not yet talked about? The only thing that we have not talked about that I think is also very important to know is give this movie a rewatch and recognize how many themes exist in this film that have then become part of so many horror movies that we love today Mm -hmm. think about the idea of you know a a strange society where you can buy organs but they get repossessed if you don't take care of them or the the weird celebrity and commodification of bodies the way that something like an antiviral i was gonna say like antiviral did very recently yes Or you look at this idea of, you know, even Paris Hilton's character as Amber Sweet and how she is, in all honesty, kind of the proto of, like, a Kylie Jenner. She's this character who is continually modifying her face and eventually overtakes this big famous family because she's the one with the most passion. Mm -hmm. I think that's really, really interesting. And then also you've you've also got to recognize that Repo is also talking about um honestly a metaphor for what would later become the opiate crisis where uh you you know you have these people that are addicted to zydrate and the same way that fentanyl is something that you can be prescribed for a doctor Mm -hmm. but you can also get it on the street and it can ruin your fucking life and it's it's done in a way that takes it very seriously but presents it with musicality so that it's it's uh palatable and i think it's really kind of incredible in hindsight how predictive this film was for what we would be like in just a short amount of time. God, so short. (laughs) Really so short for the extent of of the change that has occurred. Yeah. Yeah. Like the, the idea too of, um, you know, this repo is in all honesty, it's, it's, this is like a a big gay campy goth episode of black mirror. That's what this is. Wow, well observed on that one. And we love Black Mirror, so let's love the shit out of Repo the Genetic Opera. Exactly. Exactly. That's what we really need in our lives. Now, VJ, where, and so now that we move into our sign offs, where can the folks find you and what would you like to tell them about? Sure, you can find me on Twitter. My handle is just my name, at BJ Colangelo. Um, and then I also run a weekly podcast with my wife called this ends at prom where we digest and analyze uh movies that are geared towards teen girl audiences although we know that they are not exclusively movies for teen girls and uh it's coming from my perspective of somebody who grew up on them and loves them and is a huge apologist for them and my wife's perspective as a transgender woman who was who grew up socialized as a teen boy and missed all of them so it's very really fun good. To have the conversation. It's really Thank good. You. It's it's a it's a wonderful conceit. It's 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 a nice one of those like immediately make you warm inside because you think about that movie that you really loved and how you felt when you first watched it. And then it is a tremendous way to consider it at a time when we have so much more perspective and so much more language to actually communicate the varying experiences of people who watch these movies when and how the circumstances around their lives at the time they see them. So yes, do check out this ends at prom. 
And I, of course, am Jordan Cruciola. You can find me here. You can find me on Disaster Girls Podcast. You can find me talking about a simple favor on a simple podcast with various extremely generous members of the production, uh, like director Paul Feig and screenwriter Jessica Scharzer, who have talked to us about that. So that's, I'm around and I'm talking constantly. So... BJ, thank you so much for joining us today. And for really, like, I, I, I'm thinking of Ots Tyrion and, and me and Sam in a, a seasons format. So, like, you know, we'll do a chunk. And then we won't do some for a while. And then we'll do a chunk. And I'm so glad that we are starting off with the, we are starting in, in a first sort of collection of episodes with the kind of texture to this conversation that Repo <laughs> the Genetic Opera brings. So thank you very much for bringing that to the table. Thank you for inviting me and letting me continue to preach the gospel of Repo the Genetic Opera. Yes. If there's one thing I've learned in the course of becoming the world's foremost scholar about Jennifer's body, it's that these communities of people who love these movies just need to be brought together. And they they, they, they want to be brought together and they just need to know where to go. So thank you, BJ. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in. And we will surely see you on a future episode of Oxterion. I wonder why they need me at all. Zytrate comes in a little glass vial. A little glass vial? A little glass vial. And the little glass vial goes into the gun like a battery. And the Zytrate gun goes somewhere against your anatomy. And when the gun goes off, it sparks and you're ready for surgery. Surgery. Goodbye.